in this space that is so noisy, I mean, there are mega giants, mega giants that are solving the problem of whether or not people can watch a movie. Our job was to solve the cash flow and the fundraising problem and the loyalty problem so that when we have the ability to come back, they will come back to our actual bricks and mortar cinemas. And that's a very different problem that you're solving. Hello and welcome to the Box Office Podcast. We are keeping it Box Office Pro-centric today. I'm Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor of Box Office Pro, uh, joined by our Editorial Director, Daniel Luria, and Sean Robbins, our Chief Analyst. Hi, guys. Hey, Rebecca. Hey, Rebecca. So later in this podcast, we have an interview with Tori Baker, President and CEO of the Salt Lake Film Society, about ways that independent theaters are... are, uh, trying to make it through this very tough, tumultuous period. But first, there's a topic that is still on the top of everyone's minds and, and probably will be for the foreseeable future, the box office performance of Tenet and other films that have opened in theaters worldwide since the COVID shutdown. One of the big headlines we've seen over the past few days is that Tenet crossed the $250 million mark worldwide, most of that coming from international markets. Sean, give me your analysis of those figures. What's going on? Yeah. So uh, like you mentioned, it passed, uh, I think, a kind of an important benchmark. This is the only film outside of the 800 in China, which has earned this kind of uh, figure since the shutdown earlier this year. So while we're, st- we're still talking about numbers that are far off of pre-pandemic norms, it is still kind of a threshold that's uh, that I think is very clearly driven by international. And we're looking at uh, a little over 25 million this weekend, which was about a 35% drop from last week. Uh, if you take out China, it's 29%. Uh, so it looks a little better that way. But uh, that brings the uh, international cum to about 215 and domestically, also saw, saw a stronghold that was about 26 down from last week. So that puts it at 4.7 million, still number one, probably will be number one for at least a few more weeks, if not longer. And uh, there, I think they're really we're kind of entering that phase of the run where the numbers themselves may not feel as impressive as we were hoping, but the takeaway is that the drops are living up to that expectation of moviegoers coming back in small waves. We haven't seen a major drop off in most countries for this film yet, which is one of the positive takeaways right now. Now, Sean, the film opened in two major overseas markets over the weekend, uh, Japan and Mexico. Could you tell us a little bit of, of how those individual performances played out? Yeah, absolutely. Japan was uh, was probably one of the biggest stories, I think, of the film's debut so far, at least since that initial opening. Uh, it made $4.3 million in its opening weekend there, which was actually higher than the three-day openings of Dunkirk and Interstellar. And that's despite 50% seating capacity in Japan right now. So that's a major win uh, in that territory. And in Mexico, like you mentioned, also was, I believe, the first country to release the film in Latin America, and it opened with about 850,000. And they have currently about 88% of theaters reopened. So both of those are are more positive marks, and we're still we're still looking at about another 25 markets that have yet to open the film. That's interesting, at least from you know, where I'm from in, in Mexico, seeing movie theaters finally reopening, getting some Hollywood product in there. Of course, with the Mexican market, what performs exceptionally well there our Disney titles, our superhero titles, our animated titles. Pushing Mulan, I think, is a big hit 
for that market. But uh, hey, it's it's good to have this movie out there. We also saw some strongholds in uh, in Western Europe and other markets where it's still going on. What are those territories, Sean, where Tenet is showing strong legs? So we've seen Russia, Hong Kong, France, Australia, and Spain this weekend each drive drops of 25% or less. And there are other examples. Obviously, these are key markets, though, that we can highlight and really look to as major territories uh, where we're seeing the film hold on pretty well. And IMAX, again, most pretty much all premium large format screens in every country, domestic and international, have been uh, major components of these drops and are still reporting a lot of strong sales. It's interesting you you bring up those premium formats because that's also something we're seeing here in in North America, right? With uh, strong performance from IMAX and Dolby Cinema formats here in the United States and Canada. It's been an interesting weekend, Sean. You mentioned that the title made 4.7 million here domestically, which is scary to, to say that the number one movie in the domestic market made under 5 million. But as you bring up the, the hold is actually what we have to sort of look at and sort of see that not too many new locations are coming in and Tenet is still holding steady where it's playing. Looking at percentages that, that Warners gave us over the weekend, 14% of that 4.7 million came from Canada, which has been open for a week longer than it has in the US. And 13% of that 4.7 million weekend total from North America actually came from locations that were added since Labor Day weekend. Some of those locations include drive-ins, including a drive-in in in Los Angeles that was actually one of the top three earners as individual locations for Tenet. The state of California, even though it's not fully open, and this is really where we get to the importance of California and New York in the domestic reopening picture, in California, we have six of the top 10 feeders for Tenet alone, and actually 10 of the top 20 earners in the domestic market for Tenet are all coming from California. You know, we're getting word that the drive-ins are also coming in, allowing this picture to play. Uh, Sean, how do drive-ins fare with the market share for Tenet domestically? So yeah, we're looking at four of the top 10 locations uh, representing drive-ins and one of them in Los Angeles. And that really kind of represents this interesting share of where Tenet is performing strongest, where it's available. If we look at the top 10 markets so far, Orange County and greater Los Angeles are at the top, especially with Orange having recently reopened. We see areas like Dallas, Toronto, Salt Lake City, and Phoenix making up the, the rest of the top five. But we also, we see other areas across the country, Chicago, greater New York, Houston, Atlanta, San Diego. And I think what we're, we're going to kind of see are, you know, hopefully as more markets reopen, even though drive-ins are performing strongly, we're still seeing traditional hard top theaters do really well for this film. Yeah, and, and you'd mentioned Orange County and the greater LA area being the top DMA. The top location for Tenet last weekend was an AMC hardtop theater in Orange County, for example. Now, you, you mentioned that uh, greater New York metro area is among those top 10 DMAs for Tenet. Uh, important to say that the state of New York isn't part of that. When we say mm-hmm. greater New York metro, what we actually mean is things uh, about an hour's drive for both Rebecca and myself over People. New Jersey <laughs> or Connecticut. People renting cars, renting zip cars and going out to Jersey to see Tenet. 
Hey, it's I'm true. seeing, I'm actually visiting uh, relatives in a couple of weeks in Philadelphia. I've already budgeted the time to, to slip into the movies and, uh, and watch Tenet in, in the state of Pennsylvania. So I'm, oh, I'm nice. actually looking forward to that. I, I think that I think the the next time I'm leaving New York State would probably be around Thanksgiving. So I don't know. We'll see if if Tenet will still be in theaters then. I'm, I'm guessing there won't be a ton new to push it out between now and then. What are the other films that are in, in theaters now? Uh, things like New Mutants. Uh, how have they been performing on Holdover? New Mutants is a great example to bring up because we, usually when we talk about these uh, superhero movies of any brand or you know studio or whatever, we're used to seeing them open to a certain number, usually pretty big, and then dropping off, or opening not so big, but then still dropping off because you get that fan base rush. New Mutants hasn't really done that. It had kind of an expected first weekend drop, but ever since then, it's it's really showed some staying power. It's down just 22% from last weekend. Obviously, we can factor in the reality of movie going right now and the reopening of theaters, but it's not alone. It's, it's also joined by Unhinged, which only eased about 15% from last weekend. Broken Hearts Gallery, which just released uh, one week before, only dropped 29% this weekend. So we're, we're really seeing, amid all the unfortunate kind of news of our optimistic expectations of how this reopening would go not coming to fruition, the one thing that is coming to fruition is that we're seeing these films really stick and draw back small, small waves of, of moviegoers each weekend. And I, I think that paints the picture for what we'll see this weekend and probably the weekends to come. I mean, we now know that Wonder Woman won't be releasing in October. Right after we, we uh, recorded last week, Greenland was pushed from its late September date and to, to, a, uh, to an unset date. So the market really relies on Tenet and these holdovers like New Mutant and Infidel, which is, I think is a big story to bring up from Cloudburst Entertainment this weekend. It, it opened well past expectations with 1.4 million. And that'll be another, you know, another anchor for exhibitors to rely on. It's one of those points that you guys brought up in the podcast last week where we're going to have to see what role these titles that you would usually put into the market as counter programmers play in this wide open runway that they have up until November. I think Infidel, as you bring up, Sean, is, is a very interesting point. And uh, I do wonder, you know, what are these independent cinemas? What are these even art house theaters that don't rely on a big studio blockbuster? How are they going to fare in this interim? Interesting you should bring that up. That that will uh, segue us marvelously into our, our interview segment here for this podcast. It's almost like we planned it. What? <laughs> uh, we were we were really thrilled to speak with uh, Tori Baker, president and CEO of the Salt Lake Film Society, who has helped to launch a program called At Home Arts, which is basically kind of an extension of the virtual theatrical model that we saw pop up really shortly after, after the March shutdown in the United States. What this is, it's kind of a, a, a bigger, more coordinated program that will help independent art house theaters across the United States, you know, get together a virtual theatrical slate and hopefully, you know, get some money going, maintain their connection with their community, you know, even though they're maybe not able to open their doors or not able to open their doors every day because of a lack of content. So from there, we're going to push it to our interview with Tori. 
And we have here with us today Tori Baker, the president and CEO of the Salt Lake Film Society, which is really spearheading this uh, effort across art houses to create an essentially a, what can we call it, a, a virtual theatrical network of uh, different cinemas. Tori, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, um, you know, this is something that Rebecca and I have been talking about for, for weeks now since the COVID situation took hold uh, with our other co-host, uh, Russ. We've been talking about where does virtual theatrical go? Had a great opportunity to speak with uh, Richard Lorber, one of the, the first pioneers in, in getting this out to cinemas. Could you tell us a little bit from your perspective how this idea took shape? For one, I think the art houses and the art house structural model of most of us being nonprofit allows for a sort of nimbleness when we look at the industry as a whole and how we're reacting to certain industry pressures, in particular disruption. So when the biggest disruption that we've had, you know, probably in decades occurred, which was COVID, and we closed on March 13th here at the Salt Lake Film Society, my immediate plan was to look at a pivot. And that sort of comes from both the human being that I am and the entrepreneurial spirit that I have, but also the understanding and resource that we had at the Salt Lake Film Society, which was actually a little bit, of, well, not even a little bit, was a great luxury. We had launched a media accelerator studio last year, and we'd been working on that media accelerator studio with an online project that meant that I had some tech individuals, specifically a gentleman named Miles Romney, who worked for us to uh, provide Mass Studio all its accelerator needs with regards to the filmmakers, what they're doing, and the online community that we were creating. So we had not yet launched our online community, and we took the technology base of that, and we just pivoted that resource 100% into thinking about how to solve our current problems. For me, there were only two problems that we were solving in that crisis. Number one was cash flow, and number two was fundraising. And I know that a lot of the for-profit theaters do not think that fundraising is something that is at their fingertips, which I would dare say is not not wholly accurate. Of course, there's you know grants that would apply to nonprofits only and such. But when you're talking about fundraising, that's everything from whether or not you get a PPP loan all the way through the ideas of whether or not you have a membership and a loyalty program. So I felt like we were solving those two problems. When Kino came out with you know, their innovation, and they had already been along their pathway as well, and then offered it to the art houses, I think that was a really amazing resource at the time for art houses that didn't have the resource I had to solve this problem on the ground. So I looked to, can we create something that actually protects the fact that we are an exhibiting organization? but that we are out of necessity having to pivot to this online space. And to me, what that looked like was that looked like reinforcing theatrical, and that meant reinforcing the structure of theatrical and the business model, as well as the patron perception of theatrical and their experience. So when we looked at building something for technology that would support that, the first things that we built in structurally was 
you know, how do they go to the box office entry? Do they have a showtime that they watch? Are we reinforcing the language of theatrical? Are we reinforcing watching movies on a Friday and a Saturday? Are there concession options? So those are all the things that we talked about in the vision of what would we do if we were to pivot online. That, of course, didn't solve the issues of I guess, can you get a movie, <laughs> right? And, <laughs> and can you put that on your technology? But I think the vision was what had to come first. And that vision was to help cash flow, which I, I you know, I appreciate very much all the distributors work that they've done to, to offer films to, to people so that they have something to engage their patron base. But the cash flow situation is a little bit wonky right now, right? When we kind of mm-hmm. did that topsy-turvy thing where exhibitors became, you know, the on the flip side of distribution in this model. So I was trying not to do that. And I was trying to say this core vision has to be structurally sound. And it has to be exactly the same experience with the exception of an online screen as they would have at the Broadway or the Tower, in my case you know, that they feel like they're still my patron. They're walking up to our box office. They're participating in our curation and our programming, and they're not being sent elsewhere. So that was really the core pop process. That's, that's interesting. I mean, we've, we've spoken with other exhibitors who more or less immediately, um, you know, jumped into the virtual theatrical model. And one of the issues that initially came up is how financially viable is this long-term? Is, is this a, uh, is this a stopgap? Uh, what's the long-term potential of this? In the initial few weeks that, that virtual theatrical began to be adopted, what were the conversations that you were having with other art house and independent exhibitors about uh, the concerns and the opportunities they saw in the model? Well, we didn't start talking to a, a large number of theaters until you know we had beta tested everything for a few months between the Salt Lake Film Society and the Coolidge. But I would I would say that for me... I was very concerned about what I was seeing. I loved the idea and the concept that we would create a virtual theatrical lane, but my concern was the topsy-turvy business model of it and the patron experience confusion of it. Because really what happens when you're sending you know, a patron to another provider that also has another login that they need to register for that, that that person's, that company is collecting their information that is changing your lifetime value of your patron. And what the art houses in particular of all the NATO constituents hold that they have for decades is their audiences. They know who they are. They know them intimately, personally, and all their information, what kind of movies they watch, how long they've been a member, how much they've donated on top of going to see movies. That is an asset that I was very concerned was in a moment of panic, which I understand the panic, believe me. Uh, In a moment of panic, when all the theaters closed, everybody let go of that precious asset. So for me, the Salt Lake Film Society, having had the luxury of coming up with technology, we did not launch until April 3rd. So we closed on, on March 13th and did not launch the tech until April 3rd. And we launched with the Coolidge, I think, one or two weeks after that um, so that we could test this and also help increase the booking power of the technology. But that two-week gap was, I did nothing 
during that period. <laughs> so I was not willing to take the, you know, one of the assets that we've worked so hard on and just sort of, you know, think too lightly about it. And and I don't want to say that anybody thought lightly about that. I think a lot of people are in economic pain with their businesses and that the solutions that they turned to were necessary and they had to do them. I just happened to be a little bit more lucky where the film society had already grown to this point of having a comfortable reserve fund, having two very solid venues and having the technology capability with our staff members to take a vision and implement it. I really, I'm intrigued by something you said a few minutes ago about the need for, you know, independent theaters to, while they're doing virtual theatrical, really maintain their brand, really, really maintain their audience. I was speaking with with Dale Dobson, who is the who, who runs the Maisel's Maisel Art Cinema in in Harlem, and she said basically that exact same thing that you know right now with virtual theatrical, someone could rent a movie from us or someone could rent a movie uh, from Lincoln Center, and there's there's functionally very little difference. So you know, in her mind, you know what the Maisel's has to do is really double down on the curatorial approach. With home arts, what's the possibility there to to really for a theater to really differentiate itself and its programming and its like spirit and vibe and brand? Well, listen, I might be a little bit of a rebel on the block here, but I actually think you know as important as curation is because content is king. The reality is you're either loyal to an institution or you are not. And if you're a patron that is that is leaving that institution for whatever reason, it's usually an issue of friction, I would say. And what we were trying to do with our tech is reduce the friction and increase the loyalty. So for instance, if you go to you know Lincoln Center, be, and not your local art house. What? Why did you do that? Did you even know? I mean, let's let's be serious about independence. Nobody knows they they don't have a brand like AMC. Nobody knows the independent theater exists unless they're in their community and they're active in their community and they're loyal to that brand. So that's the work that's been done for decades in the in the independent and art house realm that you can capitalize on now. And I don't know that you have to worry in a theatrical VOD space that they would go to Lincoln Center because if they do, your job it, it was not done well in terms of probably I would say better way to say it would maybe be the job of engagement and loyalty wasn't done on the ground in order to even matter to your patron. And in this space that is so noisy, I mean, there are mega giants, mega giants that are solving the problem of whether or not people can watch a movie, right? Our job was not in that moment of closure to solve the job of whether or not people could watch a movie. Our job was to solve the cash flow and the fundraising problem and the loyalty problem so that when we have the ability to come back, they will come back to our actual bricks and mortar cinemas. And that's a very different problem that you're solving. And that's how we looked at it. We looked at it from that angle of you know, can people donate because they they miss us? Can they see a movie at the tower? 
right? Do they feel like they're seeing a movie at the tower when they see a movie at the tower? Can they see anybody's movie at the tower? That was really a big key with the platform as well. And that's the curatorial part. So maybe you want to, maybe you want to say, yes, they can see this movie on Kino Lorber's platform, but they want to see it at the tower. So, Mm -hmm. so it's about the actual identity of your theater and that big screen experience and everything you can do to augment the idea psychologically that the big screen matters and that communal viewing of a movie matters and that even if we can't do it, we're going to do it on the virtual screen of the theater we're loyal to. And I think that has a lot less to do with what movie, right? Now, now clearly our tech is limited by what movie based on who will work with us on the distributor side. But once we program the tech, if you choose this film over that film, or you choose to open two films a week instead of four films a week, you know, because that's what we do too. We, we open films on Friday, we close films on Thursday, we hold over. Again, it's so important to reinforce the theatrical behaviors, whether or not you had to pivot online or not. You know, we'll see what happens with the cohort. I think there's there is a great temptation to say why don't just why don't you just make every movie live for as long as it can be live? Well, you know, I, I think that's up to you individually as a theater and how you're serving your community. But again, you're not solving the problem of can my patrons watch a movie? Netflix is doing a pretty good job of that, as well as Disney Plus and some other mega giants. You're solving the problem of loyalty and emotion around the art house that you are. That is what will pay off in the long run with the donations, which, by the way, at the Salt Lake Film Society, we're at 40%. So for every film that somebody watches, say, you know, to use whole numbers, if they watched a film at $10, $4 in addition comes in through that technology as a donation. And the Coolidge is at 35% and we'll see what the other cohort ends up netting when it comes to additional dollars. I just looked at uh, some recent figures and, you know, so we were grossing you know, some nice numbers on our most recent films. And we were more at a 50% for that particular film. Wow. So different films, you know, ignite different, different. I think that that's sort of the diversity conversation as well. If you have a film mm-hmm. that, that people is that people feel is important to, uh, you know, talking about the environment or talking about Black Lives Matter or something, they know that you're the conduit and you're the home of that place, whether you're open or not right now. And they're going to donate above and beyond the purchase of that film. So, so those are the sort of core pillars that we built this around and then tested with the Coolidge for three months and then said, I have one person <laughs> who's, a tech, <laughs> who's a tech who does this, but, and I hope I'm not killing him, but um, you know, as we progress through this, but we, we basically ethically felt like we could not sit on this any longer mm-hmm. and that we had to find a way to share it. And we're getting more interest in, and whether or not we can share it broader to 50, a hundred, 200, you know, independent and art houses. I don't know because that's a resource issue on my end, <laughs> but I, I think on the, uh, the ethics side, we felt like this solves all the problems that are the right problems to solve right now. And we have to share it if we can. And so I went to the board. I said, I know this is a nationwide project, which is like, hey, guys, can we do a nationwide project as a local nonprofit in a time of COVID crisis? But, you know, we really 
just felt strongly that we had to share it. Now, you mentioned a, a couple of factors that I think play into what makes this unique. First of all, is that it's not just a streaming platform. You're reinforcing these theatrical behaviors. It, it is literally a virtual theatrical, as much of a theatrical experience or movie going experience as you could have, you're trying to incorporate that in. The second one that I find extremely interesting is that this is a group effort. You use the word uh, booking power. Uh, you've referred to working with some distributors. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, some of the cohort that is part of this campaign and why it's so important to have that strength in numbers in this initiative? Sure. Um, Let me address your number one first. I would not just say this is not just a streaming platform. It is not a streaming platform. The fact that you're streaming a movie is certainly a factual thing surrounding the tech, but it is a visit to your local theater and you are watching a film on their virtual screen. And what the tech does on on that side is it's not... You know, the goal of a streaming platform is subscriber model business models, right? The goal of this nonprofit project for the Salt Lake Film Society is to help the art houses nationally with cash flow and fundraising issues, and then to augment their bricks and mortar, potentially once they're open, with that virtual screen to service what is now a new and emerging underserved population which means underserved by they don't feel like they're safe to go out in a COVID climate or they can't go out because of medical issues. So so this virtual screen really becomes a mission-based screen that will service and complement even once you're open. I think it will scale down once you're open. So in my case, I have normally nine films a week, say on my seven screens playing. So I'm probably doing about eight films a week or something on the on the tech right now but once I'm open in a meaningful way and I have enough films you know chances are the virtual screen will be one film or possibly you know two films the one that's simultaneous with the screen for that underserved audience because that underserved audience will will is new and and they might be you know even post covid if there were a vaccine or something maybe that underserved audience is also somebody we've never noticed before. It's people who are physically bound or who are emotionally bound to their homes or who can't participate for some reason in your bricks and mortar. So I think, you know, with our cultural tours, for instance, right now, we're talking about that potential because we've always been limited by 200 seats with any given community on every particular screening. But now there's the ability to say, hey, let's share that with consulates around the U.S., right? You know, so I think that there's some interesting potentials emerging out of it. And so it isn't just because the film is streamed, it's not a streaming platform, It's a technology created to augment your bricks and mortar with a virtual screen that has the functionality that you need that reinforces the theatrical experience, Mm -hmm. the the box office gateway, the showtimes, the ability to donate and message directly, the ability to put local film and your free films up, you know, for people as, as added benefits to, you know, usually we do that anyway, in the art house world, we've got a fair amount of things that we're offering the communities for free. So, so that's all possible. And that's all structurally not any different than the way we looked at it from the bricks and mortar. So that's number one, to answer your number two on the group effort. 
this is a mission-based project. So for us, it was about sharing it. And then secondarily, we knew that sharing it would mean taking that theatrical virtual space back from that topsy-turvy thing that's happening, right? Like the distributors are sending BORs now and distributors are paying now. And, and that strange thing that's, that's happening with, um, you know, with the virtual space in general. So the benefit of having 12 cinemas on board, inclusive of, you know, Film Forum and, and Music Box and Austin Film Society and some, you know, some the Coolidge Corner and Film Society. I'm, I'm missing some of them. You can check the press release. But, I, I, you know, I think that having this initial core group of cohort will now put our lens to honing that theatrical lane and saying what else is there that we can build into this technology that allows us to actually you know service both distribution and exhibition in a way that is convenient and that is automated and that allows us to have our virtual screen augment our bricks and mortar you say it's it's not a not a streaming platform and and just you know coming from my own my own personal you know movie watching activities over these past couple of months i mean that that could require a kind of a mental shift for the consumer almost like i i uh, really wanted to see a film that was coming out uh you know virtual theatrical and you know subconsciously in my head i'm like oh no i don't have to, i can wait you know this is an appointment viewing it, you know i kind of you kind of think of it like a like a netflix or an hbo where it'll be up there for a while and i didn't get to it cuz i didn't think of it as being that theatrical like you have an open date and a closed date that exclusivity that's so interesting you bring that up some of those pvod titles you've mentioned rebecca in the past how much you like the, the invisible man i'm going to be honest with you if i'm going to watch it at home anyway for a pvod title i'm more likely to just wait it out for that regular VOD space or EST date to come in. But as in uh, Tori's initiative here, if it has that exclusivity, that, that actual window of running, that's a completely different conversation. It, it makes it more of an experience to my, to my perspective as well. But you need to communicate that to the audience. You need to make that clear. You need to kind of shift the way they look at things in a sort of movie going cult, you know, home movie going culture to find my Netflix. <laughs> Possibly. I mean, you have to do the work, but I would dare say that art houses are doing that work anyway, right? I think that the and and independents have that connection to their audiences that is so intimate that it's like I know who my top donors are, I know who my frequent viewers are, I know who the people who just love the cult programs are. And when you know that, you're actually a part of their family. You're a part of their their infrastructure of their lives. And so you have the capability because it's not a streaming platform and it's not looking for a subscription. It's not looking for them to join something. You have the capability to say, come to the Broadway in the tower. And when you do that, you know, you also are pushing out things like opens Friday, closes Thursday, you know, exclusive engagements, holdovers, all that same language that we use to re- reinforce the urgency of a film theatrically. There's no reason not to use that same that same information and they 
I think it creates that FOMO thing if they do miss out. And so if they do miss out and then later they got to go find it on somebody's streaming platform, it's not that they maybe won't do that because I think that was happening long before everybody closed. Right. And that I, I've, I've, I've personally been worried less about that because I think that, that what we are is we're the authenticators and the curators, right? So if they saw that melancholia opened in our theaters it doesn't matter as much. I mean, obviously it matters for economic purposes to us, but but I think where our value proposition as theaters are is that we're the validators. So when that comes up in that stream, that stream that is so prophetic that they even called it that, it's this big rapids that's just passing you by and you're lucky if you can put your hands in the water for a second and catch something. You, you know, We're the authenticators in the theater business of saying, this is worthy of your time and your eyeballs. And that happens, that's an extended value proposition. That happens long after you close the film. I'm feeling excessive FOMO that I missed the virtual theatrical uh, re-release of Zhang Yimou's uh, Shanghai Triad. That's the one that I'm like, I want to see it. And then I forgot. But l- like you said, everyone, uh, I've, I've done that for theatrical releases too. Or you mean to go out and see it and you don't. I, I, I guess that's that's not really that much of a shift in the substance, just the details of how that goes down. But Shanghai Triad becomes in your psyche something that you know is worthy of your time, right? And the value that it was presented by your local theater is the thing that made that value evident, right? So oh, yeah. it was then- a, a specific theater was like, we're programming this. And I right. said, I trust you. So right, you, you're paying for the experience rather than for the content well, in, in that regard. I mean, I don't know if I, I mean... Uh, speaking as someone who has a not great TV and a not great sound system, I don't, for me specifically, I don't feel like I'm paying for the experience. I'm, I, I feel like I'm paying for <laughs> insurance that I'm not going to be watching a bad movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, honestly. Yes. If you have something to do that. And I, and I also think with the, the t- don't underestimate the tech of the support part here is that you feel you're doing good by going to a movie this way right now, because you know you want to go to the movie at the Broadway and the Tower later. So whether you click that donate button or not, the fact that you've participated in this manner makes you understand very structurally that you aren't you weren't sent away to another place. You weren't you you're actually impacting this particular theater in this particular time with this kind of participation. It makes you feel connected. It makes it does make me feel warm and fuzzy. Yeah, <laughs> it very much does. Absolutely, and that's the local power I think of cinemas and that we've spoken about in the past. The local power that that, that they have in our communities and our lives. And uh, well, thank you so much, Tori, for for joining us. Really do appreciate it. And uh, you know, congratulations for rolling this out. I think it's a it's a fantastic uh, example of how this industry continues to innovate, continues to to push forward even when our backs are against the wall. Well, I appreciate you having us on. Happy to talk anytime. Um, Great work you're doing. Thank you so much, Tori, for joining us on the Box Office Podcast. Uh, More information on Home and Arts and any other information that you want to find about the exhibition industry, you can find by logging on to boxofficepro.com, where we also have regular box office analysis provided by Sean and our team. Uh, The Box Office Podcast is produced by Caitlin and Record Edit Podcast. Uh, We invite you to tune in again next Thursday for our next episode. Thank you so much and have a great day.